A couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly how long because I'm still trying to block this memory from my mind, but it was in the holiday season. I can't remember if it was after Christmas or before Christmas. One of my favorite things to do is to go to New York City. I like New York City. I like being there. I like all the people, the hustle and the bustle, the urban atmosphere. And we oftentimes would like to go there for the day during Christmas season. And usually what we'll do so we don't have to pay exorbitant parking uh, costs is we'll drive to Secaucus and we'll catch the train into the city. And so we did that. And we had a wonderful time in the city uh, doing all the touristy New York Christmas stuff. And we got back out to Secaucus late at night and got into our car and made it our way back onto Route 78 and starting to find our way back home to Bethlehem when the check engine light came on in our car. And uh, it immediately created all kinds of tension in our car because we were right next to the city of Newark. Now, if any of you are familiar with Newark, it's not the kind of place you want to be stranded with a broken down car uh, close to the middle of the night. And so we're trying to figure out if we need to get off, and the car is screaming at me, so we had to do it. We got off, and we pulled into this section of Newark, which I would later find out was one of the worst sections of Newark to be in. And we pulled into a garage or a gas station, and it was completely dark there, and we were trying to figure out what's going on, what's wrong with our car. It opened up the hood, but the truth is that's about all I know to do when things don't go right with the car. I figured... You probably should open the hood, and then maybe something will happen. Uh, And so our next call was to Rachel's dad, because he saves us from situations like this somewhat regularly. He knows all kinds of things about cars. Uh, And he's trying to tell us a few things, and I'm trying to look. But the truth is, I can't see anything. Uh, And so I went in, and someone from the gas station tried to help. And eventually, we called uh, our car insurance, because it had roadside assistance and and uh, the, the decision basically was you're going to need to get this thing towed, and you really, what we can pay for, like, I forget what it was, five or six miles of towing. And so uh, sometime close to midnight or thereafter, a tow truck came and towed our car, and Rachel and me and Jack and Tyler got into the front seat of the tow truck with the tow truck driver, <laughs> as he was flying through Newark and around and telling us about his life and his kids, not simply through his words, but on his phone, right, while he's driving and showing us pictures of these things. And he takes us to this place, uh, this place where the car is going to be fixed, and he says, listen, uh, these guys will be able to help you out, but not till tomorrow because they're closed. And so... He says, right across the street is a hotel. You guys should just get a room in the hotel. This place, I'm going to tell you the exact name, and here's why. You should never stay there. It's called the Swan Inn. It sounds sort of nice, and yet this is not a place you ever want to be, right? It's the kind of place where you turn on the TV channel, and you have two young kids, and you immediately have to turn off the TV because you understand why people come to these hotels Uh, Everything is sort of pleather, right? So it's easily just wiped up instead of cleaned. Rachel slept under her jacket. She wouldn't touch anything that night. And we spent this awful, horrific night in this place. And the next morning we woke up and we went to the diner next door and we're just waiting and waiting and waiting to hear about our car. And finally the guy calls. And after all of this horrific experience and we got on the road... All I could feel was a deep sense of relief that we were finally going to make it 
home again. And when we got home, it felt so good to be home. Uh, No more fears of where we were, no more unknowns of what was going on. And the truth of the matter is, the passage we want to look at this morning is written to a group of people who have just made it home. From a long and unexpected, difficult situation. And the prophet Isaiah is speaking the word of God to them as a people who have just come back from a difficult scenario and are finally home. Isaiah chapter 61, starting in verse 1, this is what the prophet writes. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known amongst the nations and their offering among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. The people of God, the Israelites in the Old Testament, had a rich history that informed them as a people. They, in fact, were God's people. He had created them and instituted them and had formed a special covenant, a special covenant relationship with them so that they would bear witness to the reality of God to all the world. And so rather than take you through a long and expedite, excuse me, a long history of the, of the Israelites, I do want to take you through an expedited one because it helps us understand what's going on in this passage. God starts history with creation, right? And so God forms the world ex nihilo out of nothing, and man is created. They are put into what is called a garden a place where they're dwelling with God forever. If you're familiar with the story, it does not take long for humanity to turn away from God's ideal 
and pursue their own direction in life. This is what theologians often call the fall or the story we remember about eating a forbidden apple. And this story replays itself time after time after time until eventually God brings a flood on the nation and he restarts in the person of Noah. And this reality of fall continues time after time again until we get to a story uh, at the city of Babel where all the people together are trying to build their own way to God. And as God looks upon it and confuses their language, he also reaches out to a place called Ur and calls a man named Abram. And says, Abram, from you I'm going to create a great nation. You'll have thousands upon thousands of descendants who will number the stars that are in the sky. And it's a restarting of God's intention that existed in the garden. But it does not take Abraham long to sort of get weak in the knees and believe in God's promise. Though he moves himself into this new land, he continues to go down to Egypt for provision instead of trusting God. And then his son Isaac does the same thing. And Isaac's son Joseph does the same thing. And ultimately it leads to the very thing that God had warned Abraham about. 400 years of enslavement in Egypt. So this creation and slavery motif for the people of God is a rich narrative of their history. Of God's intention in creating them to have this dynamic relationship with him but of the people always turning towards their own pursuits and ending up in some sense of slavery. And of course, the history of the people continues with God's great intervention on their behalf through Moses and the great story that we know as the Exodus where God delivers his people supernaturally from the slavery they're experiencing in Egypt and calls them once again to be his people, to live in the land that he's created for them, to have the kind of dynamic relationship that they were created for. And they enter into this experience ultimately through Joshua who leads the people in. And it leads to established kingdoms through great kings like David and Solomon. But ultimately the people continue to turn away from God, to pursue their own ways. And this leads into realities of slavery again. In fact, the kingdom separates And the northern kingdom of Israel is enslaved by the conquering Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah is enslaved by the conquering Babylonians. Eventually all together. And the people are experiencing this reality of of slavery. Of exile. Of not being the people they were called to be. Of not living in the land they were intended to live in. Of not having the relationship with their creator they were supposed to have. And God miraculously, once again, through his grace and mercy, intervenes on behalf of the people, ultimately through the nation of Persia, who conquers the Babylonians, and lets the Israelites go home. And they're going home. Imagine the sense of relief that they're feeling. Imagine the sense of intentionality that they're feeling about how they want this new chapter in their life to look like. Imagine the excitement that they're feeling to finally be released from over 90 years of captivity. And they're going home. And these are the words that God speaks to them in this moment. The truth is, 
When they got home, home didn't look anything like they remembered it. It would be like the Israelites having our experience in Newark and coming home to find your entire house destroyed and your entire neighborhood destroyed. So the glory and the excitement these people had to finally come home was met with the dire reality that nothing was like it used to be. And that in a sense, they had nothing. The temple that they loved was destroyed. Their land was gone. Their money was gone. Everything was broken in the land and in them. And it's in this context that we can finally see exactly what God is trying to say to these people. And he's got two major points that he wants to give to them. The first is uh, what the prophet says here, the year of the Lord's favor. God is announcing to his people a year of jubilee. And this might sound fun and party-esque, but really the year of jubilee was an instituted reality for the people of God that every 50th year, they were supposed to have a year that was was sort of characterized by Sabbath and rest and freedom and forgiveness and restoration. It was meant to sort of be like a resetting, like a re-entry into the land where everything was fresh and new. And God is saying as they come back, this year is a year of jubilee. You're coming back from all of this brokenness. You're coming back from a wayward past. You're coming back as people who need forgiveness, who need to restart. And God is saying, that's exactly what you're getting. Everything is brand new. In the year of jubilee, people who were indentured servants were released. Debts that you owed to debtors were forgiven. Land that you had lost through transactions and other means was given back to you. And Sabbath was instituted for the people and for the land. It's an experience unlike anything we can ever experience in our modern world. And yet it was supposed to always remind the people of exactly what God had done for them in the exodus out of Egypt. And give for everyone a fresh start, regardless of current circumstances. When Isaiah says things like, this is the year of the Lord's favor, this is a word for the brokenhearted, for those who are mourning, for those who are poor, in that context, he is not speaking to a small segment of society. He's speaking to everyone. Because in that moment, everyone was poor. And everyone was brokenhearted. And everyone was mourning. And God said, it is a fresh start. But he's not just announcing a year of jubilee. He's also assuring the people that the land and them as people are going to be brought back to their former glory. I just took you through that quick narrative of the story of the people of God. And let me just kind of take you through it again, but use words and phrases from Isaiah 61 that will help you see exactly what the Israelites would have heard and would have associated it with. When God says to them, you will be like strong oaks planted by the Lord. The the phrase planted by the Lord is, is popular for the prophet Isaiah and for other prophets Because it is a means of reminding the people that in the same way that God instituted creation, He has every intention and desire to reinstitute creation. To renew it. 
to enable it, to bring it back to its, to its uh, past glory of humanity being everything that God intended it to be, planted by God. And he uses this fascinating word, these, these mighty oaks, these strong and, and powerful oaks of God. And, and there's, there's a million different words for oak in Hebrew. I'm not sure why. Apparently they were like fascinated by oak trees, and so they made up a ton of different words for it. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But basically, this word oak, it, 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 there's one place in the Old Testament where, where it has a powerful connotation, and, and it's in Genesis chapter 12. And if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 is the, the call of Abraham. And Abraham is called by God to come, and God's going to start a new nation through Abraham. And Abraham comes, and he's got, he's got his relative Lot with him. And if you remember the story in, in uh, the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13, Lot kind of goes his own way. He's going to end up in trouble, right? But Abraham, it says, settled by the oaks of Mamre, right? Right there at the end of Genesis chapter 12. And there's this sense in the language that the prophet speaks to the people about you will be the sturdy oaks, like this reality of back to the calling of Abraham to be my people and to have a plentiful offspring, a huge nation that glorifies God. And he speaks to them as if they are captives and prisoners and that they'll be set free. And of course, this rings true of all of the Exodus narrative, right? That though you were once enslaved, you'll be set free again. And then he uses this fascinating imagery. It says, you have ashes on you now, but you will be given a crown of beauty. And the crown of beauty is really maybe a bit of an over-translation uh, in our Bible. Uh, the translation probably mean, should mean like, like a garland or something like that. Uh, and this was, what's fascinating about this is the garland that was worn would be worn by a bride at her wedding. And so the language that Isaiah is really using here is you're dressed like you're headed to a funeral, but you will be dressed like you're headed to a wedding. You see it? They wore ashes to mourn, but you're preparing for a big wedding. You might say, well, that's beautiful imagery, but there's more to it than that because this marriage concept is, is is the analogy that God is constantly using throughout the Old Testament about his relationship with his people that they, in fact, will be joined together as if husband and wife, that God's people are his bride and he is their bridegroom. We've talked many times about how the the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, as it were, really in the, the narrative history, pictures itself a lot like a marriage contract for the people of God and for God. And Isaiah is saying, this is what we're going back to. This marriage relationship where you are with God and God is with you and there is no blockade and everything is as it should be. It is a beautiful picture of restoration. And so if for a moment we could attempt to put ourselves in the skin or in the shoes of these people who had probably spent most of their known lives as slaves, in exile, not home, And who had heard all these wonderful stories about the the high points of the history of Israel and the beautiful temple and the power of God defending them and everything it should be. And so when 
when, when return to the land is finally announced and they're released to go back to the land, imagine when they find it in shambles and looking nothing like it used to look. Uh, about a year ago, I went to a concert with Jeff Miller, who, uh, Jeff Miller, for, for those of you who don't know, works for an organization called Child Fund, and so his job there is to connect musicians or artists uh, with the organization so they can, pr- they can promote child sponsorship. So uh, I like music, and when I'm able, I'll, I'll go with him to a concert. And this particular concert was uh, the lead singer of a band who was extraordinarily popular in the late 90s, uh, in the early 2000s. I mean, this band would fill up stadiums and arenas, and people would be all in. Uh, and this particular concert that I went to was at, I forget where the place was, up in the Poconos near Jim Thorpe, Penn's Peak or something like that. And I kid you not, Jeff's not here to confirm it, but I'm not sure there was even 25 people there. And this man got up and sang his heart out. He sang all of the hits that I knew in, in uh, the days when I was in college, and yet it was a radically different experience. Imagine being a musician who sold millions of albums who toured the world, who performed before thousands upon thousands of people and taking a little bit of a break and coming back and excitement about touring again and standing up in front of 20 people and trying to play like it was. This is the reality that these people are experiencing. And now imagine the hope that begins to enter their hearts and their spirit when the prophet says to them, It's not going to stay like this. God's plan for you hasn't changed. In fact, this year, this year is a year of jubilee. The debts are forgiven. The sins are forgiven. Whatever you've owed has been paid for. The land that was rightfully yours at one time but no longer is, is back to you. You can restart your life right now, fresh and clean. And in fact, I can promise you, That all of the stories of old from the planting of the garden at Eden to the oaks at Mamre to the great exodus to the wonderful kingdom through the Mosaic covenant and the rule of David are not just stories from your past but will be truths of your present and your future. Can you begin to feel what's going on in the hearts of these people? And yet... For most of them, they would never, ever experience it. As history and the scriptures tell us that there never, ever really was a full return from the Babylonian exile. Many people never came back. They just stayed where they were. They had built lives for themselves in foreign places, and they just kind of stayed there. And while there was short, intermittent periods of independence as a nation, most of it was known by control of foreign nations, all the way up until the arrival of Jesus when the Romans are occupying the nation of Israel. And though the temple had been rebuilt, it still wasn't like it was in the days of David. And though the people had begun building industry and had you know, built their neighborhoods and their cities back together, there still was foreign dominance over their land. And what's more, there's some fascinating statements in this prophecy that Isaiah said, that certainly had to rattle their brains just a little bit. One that God would make their righteousness rise up like the soil produces the sprout from the seed. 
After all, wasn't this marriage contract all about what they could do to keep the presence of God for them? And then this fascinating statement that this covenant God would make for them with them would be prophet's words, everlasting. And so then all from this period of time, all the way into the days of Jesus, there's undoubtedly the people of God are processing this prophecy from Isaiah and saying, yes, we know it was for then, but there's something bigger. Something bigger is happening here than just the experience. And the truth is, we've never really experienced the fullness of it. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And he is born in this town called Bethlehem. And then he is raised in this area north in Nazareth. And as he begins his public ministry, he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 4. And he opens up the scroll. And what does he read to the people? Isaiah 61. And he closes the scroll. And he begins to give a dynamic sermon. One that's so dynamic I've memorized it. And we'll repeat it for you now. He said, what you have heard has now been fulfilled. End of sermon. Now imagine what's going through these people's minds. Perhaps there's someone saying, could it be? And for the rest of them, they're saying, who does this guy think he is? And yet Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Because Jesus would be the exact fulfillment of this prophecy in two very powerful ways. The first is that he is the embodiment of what Isaiah said. The very truths of everything that was supposed to be true of the people of God and wasn't would be true of Jesus. He would be the sturdy oak of righteousness that bears glory to God. He would live the kind of life that God had always intended humanity to live and yet they never really could do it. He would be the perfect image of God to the world. Jesus was the fulfillment. But there's something bigger happening here too. Because not only was Jesus the personification or the fulfillment embodiment, Jesus was also the means by which God was going to deliver on this promise for the whole world. To the broken, to the poor, to those who are mourning, they would experience joy, they would experience hope through Jesus. The jubilee that was announced to the people would be ultimately realized through Jesus. This ability to finally rest, to experience forgiveness, and to have a chance at restoration. See, Jesus was not just an oak of righteousness, therefore being the kind of person that God intended humanity to be. But he was also a different kind of oak of righteousness. I told you Hebrew, the Hebrew language has several different words for oak. And what I find fascinating is that this word chosen here actually has a double meaning. I think it was chosen on purpose. This word oak is also translated ram. 
Isn't this fascinating? The Hebrew language is so fascinating. And I try to do some research on why this would be, and the best I can understand is the horns of the rams were really hard, and the wood of the oak was really hard. And for the Eastern culture, the, the Jewish culture of the day, words were kind of descriptive in that way. Uh, and so this is how it was. And so this word is not just oak tree, but it's also ram. And it's not just used for the oaks of Mamre in Genesis chapter 12. It's also used again in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22 is a story that is so profound. Remember Genesis chapter 12, God had called Abraham and said, You will be a great nation. You're going to have so many kids. Your offspring is going going to compete with the number of the stars in the sky. And there was one problem with that. Do you remember? Abraham's wife was barren. She couldn't have any children. And so Abraham probably believed God in some way, but never really understood how this was all going to happen. And then through God's divine providence, Abraham's wife Sarah gives birth to a son named Isaac, who is the fulfillment of the very promise that God had made to him. And shortly thereafter, God speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 and says, Abraham, I need you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. Imagine what's going through Abraham's mind. So they begin to climb a mountain And Isaac is not a small baby, as many of us might have pictured him. He's at least a teenager and perhaps a young man. And he's climbing this mountain together with his dad. And imagine the thoughts that are going through his dad's mind as they traverse up this mountain. His father knowing exactly the purpose and his son probably unsure what's going on. And they get to the top and they build an altar. And Abraham has to turn to Isaac and say to him, I have to sacrifice you to God. And if chronology is right, and my understanding of the text is right, this is not a situation where Abraham puts a little baby in a small crib and sets him on an altar. This is a strong, hulking young man whose dad was really old when he had him. Remember the story? Like a hundred years old. The story looks like some sense of submission from a son to his father, who's willing to lay down on this altar, not sure exactly what the whole point of this plan is, and yet trusting that his dad knows what he's doing. And in that moment, as Abraham is ready to strike him and follow through on God's command to him, an oak, that is a ram, gets trapped in the shrubs. And the angel of the Lord stops the hand of Abraham and turns his head to this ram or oak, which becomes the substitute sacrifice for the son of Abraham. Jesus, of course, as the son of God, would go on from that sermon in Nazareth to not simply heal a bunch of people or preach powerful sermons or cast out demons, but ultimately 
to go up a mountain called Calvary and to willingly place himself on an altar called the cross as a substitute sacrifice for the broken people of God. Jesus is the true oak of righteousness. He's strong and sturdy in how he lived his life for God, but he is a substitute sacrifice, a ram that had been provided for God on behalf of the people so that this promise would not just be true for Jesus, but for everyone who would receive him as their own. And in so doing, the final exile of life is overcome. Certainly there was exile to Egypt and there was exile to Babylon, but the exile of death was defeated once and for all. So finally, the truth of these words rings clear to all who would trust Jesus That for the poor there is hope. And for the brokenhearted there is hope. And for those who are mourning there is hope. And for those whose life feels more like a funeral than a wedding there is hope. And for those whose life feels an awful lot like an exile, there's not just return but there's restoration. It should not be fascinating to you or to me then that when Jesus begins to speak about the church, what does he call her? His bride. Right? And he reannounces this wedding terminology and says he is the bridegroom and he will come back for his church who is the bride and they will be joined together and everything that was written in this prophecy will be true because Jesus came. And because of his own will and desire, he laid himself down on the altar. He, and only He, is the oak of righteousness. So you might say, well, that's a wonderful story, Adam, but what does it mean for me? Three things, very quickly. The first is, your only hope is Jesus. If you are hoping in religion to accomplish something for you, if you're hoping in your hard work to build a life for yourself, if you're hoping in some theological construct about who Jesus is or might be, you're missing the point. Jesus himself is our hope. He offers us the very thing that this prophecy offered the people of God, a double portion, an inheritance that they rightfully had disowned is now theirs again. And this is only true, not because we can prove to God that we can be strong oaks, but because Jesus did it in our place. 
For many of you, what I've just said is old news. For, for those of you who it's new news, it's my privilege to share it with you. For most of us, this is old news. You know what the problem is? The problem is that it's old news. That we don't sit and just be overwhelmed at all that Jesus has done for us. And let it direct our life in such a way that it ought to. The second thing I think we can take from this is, the truth of the matter is, we live in a time a lot like these people coming back from exile. You might say, well, how does that make sense? Well, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have been rescued, right? And yet, talk to me about the world you live in. Is it all that you hoped it would be? Does it match the glory of how God intended this world to be? Or do the TV headlines and the newspaper headlines and the stories of your own life remind you day by day, this world is nothing like the glory God intended it to be? If that is true, then this prophecy is for us. That there is hope that this world is just as broken as you think it is. And yet God is far greater than the brokenness that is in it. And that the arrival of Jesus that we celebrate in Advent proves God's intention to make all things new. And then lastly, God wants you to be an oak of righteousness planted by God. That even as we live in this broken world, it is us, the way we live, the way we carry ourselves, the creed that matters to us, the, the, the way we've oriented our lives in the midst of the craziness and the chaos of this life ought to tell a story to an onlooking world of a strange sense of confidence that we really shouldn't have. And that confidence is in a God who is making all things new. When the world looks at you, (laughs) is this the picture they see? And then us for each other, church. I think there's beauty in this picture. That God plants vineyards, he doesn't plant a single tree. Because there are times when we do not feel like strong and sturdy oaks in this world. And it's in those moments that we need the forest around us. That we need to be able to look at other people and see them standing strong in the midst of difficulty. That we need to be encouraged by their faith and spurred on by their love and passion for Christ. This is the picture of the church that God has. That we wouldn't be called individually to live as standing oaks by themselves, but together, withstanding the storms of the world, we would speak of the glory of God to the world. That we would be people who simply don't gather for special religious gatherings on Sundays, but people who honestly are defined by a hope that secures us even in the most turbulent of times. And that hope is Jesus. Can I pray with you?